Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we explore the local history of Shays Rebellion with local author Daniel Bullen, who, in addition to having written about the event, will be giving a talk about the confrontation at one of the sites that that confrontation happened, the Springfield Armory. And we'll also hear Mr. Universe hamster colleges Salman Hamid give us the rundown on black hole breakthroughs at UMass and the latest country to touch down on the moon, Japan. And a much-beloved group of singers has sauntered down 91 to find a new home and a new residency. What's the name of this theater again? It's a long name. Esther B. Griswold Theater for the Performing Arts. Gotcha. We are at the (laughs) Esther B. Griswold Theater for the Performing Arts at American International College in Mason Square and State Street, the heart of Springfield. My name is Frank Borelli. I'm an assistant dean for student support in the School of Business Arts and Sciences. And here at this theater, we can hear there is a rehearsal going on. It is a rehearsal. It's a rehearsal from Western Mass and the world's favorite octogenarian rock and roll chorus, the Young at Heart Chorus, where people, I think it's like 75 now is how old you have to be to get into the chorus. We'll ask them in a little bit, sing more contemporary songs than perhaps the songs that they grew up with in their youth. Why is this what is largely thought of as a Northampton-based chorus rehearsing here at American International College in Springfield. So I was connected to Bob um, and Julia, their sort of co-directors through our president, Hubert Benitez. Bob um, Silman is the founder of Young and Heart Chorus. Julia, we have yet to meet, but we see her conducting in there right yes. now. Yeah, she's great. And they really wanted to be a part of this community, the number of people in the Mason Square community that were very interested in being a part of the Young and Heart Chorus or supporting it. They were also rehearsing at another space that unfortunately closed in Holyoke. And so this was sort of a central space, sort of in the middle of Western Mass between their home in Northampton and a community they wanted to kind of be a part of that they didn't have much of a foot in. And so they're now artists in residence at AIC. They're part of our community here every Thursday. Um, and they'll be performing up to three times a year at the college. And they'll be taking on a student intern to support the work. And it's very exciting. And it really is related to the college's commitment to the arts and community engagement. And I just couldn't be happier that they're here. Have they had a chance to interact with the students at AIC yet? What does that look like a bit uh, they just started a couple weeks ago um, so <laughs> students just kind of returned but some students have wandered in on Thursdays like what is going on um, <laughs> it's all, students? Yeah, what what's happening? happening here I want to be part of that program uh, but um, but you know this is a very large building and it's very cavernous and so when it's silent it's really tough to let the day go by. Um, but to have music in that theater, what is meant to be in there, performing arts, is really rewarding. And so rehearsals are open to anybody on campus. And so staff wander in and open the door and find the secret garden. Do you know what is happening here? It's a whole new world. Um, but you know, I think more than anything else, it's so wonderful for our students to interact with individuals with so much life experience and wisdom and passion for what they do regardless of what our students study. You know, that you learn and you grow your entire life, it never stops. Um, You can pursue your passions, you can change your perspective on the world, you can be whoever you wanna be, wherever you are. 
Um, and I think that this group sort of offers that perspective to our students. Frank, AIC had had an artist in residency program previously, but this is kind of a resurgence of that. Why is that it something is. that um, AIC wanted to bring back? So we had a very long time artist in residence here named Alvin Page, who a, a number of your listeners may have known Alvin. I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but he is responsible for this building. Um, and he is responsible for the large column statues outside the college that has sort of become an emblem of AIC. He was an artist in residence at AIC for 40 years. He retired and unfortunately passed away, but was an institution in Springfield and brought the community in for art exhibits. He brought the Berkshire Ballet in residence here for many years. He retired and then slowly that started to melt away, which was very sad. Nobody really took up the mantle to make sure that it was maintained. Right. And I think with all wonderful things that are based on one individual, people retire, people move on, Mm -hmm. people do new things. And unfortunately, Alvin passed away and he's no longer with us. But I was hired at AIC 12 years ago to start a bachelor's degree in theater arts. That program ran for about 10 years very successfully. We chose to phase that program out in favor of starting an arts and entertainment management program for students learning how to manage facilities. And I thought, we've got to fill this space again. We have to bring in community artists, local artists, and speakers to this building to fill it with what it's meant to be filled with. I know that you said that there'll be an intern that'll be working with the Young at Heart Chorus, who is the new artist in residency here at AIC. But Will the Young at Heart and their presence here uh, interact with other classes or other ways that the performing arts are being studied and celebrated here at AIC? The door's open. (laughs) Why not? Um, I think the opportunities are are endless. I will also say I'm very, very proud. One of our students in communication is actually interning on your show. Oh, yeah. They haven't started yet. (laughs) They haven't started yet. But I'm very excited that that is happening. We hope you know how to make coffee really well. That is the most important thing to the show. No, he's very excited to start. So yeah, good times, good things happening at AIC. And I think a lot of it is the vision of our president who said, you know, I've done my work to figure out the history of this institution. Let's hearken to that and let's figure out what we can we can build in the future with it. I think if more places really connect to their positive, inclusive histories, then we can um, really meet people in ways that perhaps we haven't met them before. Will the chorus be open to students doing collaborations with them? Like if students in various projects on on campus wanted to incorporate the chorus, are there channels for that to happen? I think so. You know, we have a significant and very large occupational and physical therapy program. I'm sure there might be opportunities there. Ah, Um, Yeah, because these are octogenarians. But I'll also say, you know, our sociology program, our psychology program, other programs in the arts, you know, anyone who has an idea, let's bring it to the table and let's make it happen. The group is only here once a week, but the hope is that they start to feel more of the community and come whenever they want to to campus. Um, They'll be eating in our dining commons. And I heard they were very excited about that. Yes, indeed. Um, (laughs) Well, it's all you can eat, you know what I mean? And and it's pretty good food. But, uh, But in general, I think, you know, we're just starting to lay the ground work for something that I hope in time will really grow and flourish. Well, it sounds like the chorus is on a break, so maybe we should go talk to some of the people from the chorus. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> so we're here with three of the Young and Hard Chorus members. What's your name? It's Lilia. Everybody calls me Lee. And yeah. where do you live? In Springfield, about three blocks up the street. I love it. <laughs> What's your name? My name is John Reinhardt, and I also live in Springfield. 
And what's your name? And nine is Rosemary Kane Rosie, and I live in Greenfield. So you don't walk. <laughs> I do not walk. Rehearsal here. <laughs> but you have been on the show on St. Patrick's Day last year, and everybody, another time too. Everybody here has been on the show That's before. True. That is true. And what's your name? Hi, I'm Julia Van Eiken. Uh, I live in East Hampton. Now, Julia, you were up there conducting. I've only seen Bob Silman, the founder, <laughs> conduct this chorus. Tell me about your relationship to the chorus. So I've been working with the chorus for the last four years. I, I wrote an email to Bob at the beginning of the pandemic just saying, hey, you interested in collaborating? I was finishing my master's degree, and he was like, yes. <laughs> and then after a few months, that turned into a job, a remote job, which lasted like a year and a half, and then I moved here. And I've been here for a little while now, and I'm co-conducting the group with Bob. Tell me about what it's been like, because this chorus has traditionally rehearsed usually somewhere near Northampton in Florence, and then kind of went to, to Gateway City Arts, which sadly closed. Tell us about your new residency here in Mason Square at AIC and what that has been like so far. Oh, well, right up the street, and our church has had some fairs over here at AIC. So, I mean, I'm kind of familiar with it. You know, I've been here before. It's really home. Well, for me, it's a godsend because I don't live too far from here. Going to rehearsal in Northampton and in Holyoke uh, twice a week can put a strain on a person's body, so it's a good godsend for me. We're doing one rehearsal here and the other rehearsals in Florence. So everybody gets one that's close yeah. to them. It keeps Rosemary from having to drive too far. <laughs> well, I've become a country driver, and now that I've got lost a few times, even with the aid of a GPS, I think I can actually make it door-to-door without ending up on a one-way street going the wrong way. It ain't easy. This is my neighborhood, and I got lost. <laughs> That's very comforting to know. <laughs> What's something that the chorus is hoping to gain from being the artist in residence here? Well, one of the big reasons that we started rehearsing here is because we really want to make this a more diverse group. And in order to do that, we actually have to think about equity, and we can't just rehearse in Northampton and then expect the community from Springfield, for instance, that we really want to connect with and become a bigger part of to just come to Northampton. That doesn't make sense. So our idea was, okay, let's find a rehearsal space in Springfield and then actually start connecting with people from Springfield. We have a few members from Springfield, but, you know, for the longest time, Young at Heart has been like a resource, because it's, this is not a therapy group, but it is a resource for people. You know, people have something to do twice a week and things to prepare for throughout the week. And when we're really lucky, we go on tour and that's all free travel and really exciting stuff. And so far that's been readily accessible for mostly the people of Northampton. We're here now and um, we're very excited about that. I'm glad that we're here because now we can probably have some of our shows here and yeah. it will reach out to a lot of the Springfield people that don't come to the ones up in Northampton. Mm-hmm. Maybe for whatever reason they don't have a way to get there or whatever. So I just think it's fabulous, you know, and I hope that it does broaden the horizon for Springfield people now to come out and support, even think about joining. You mentioned your church. Yes. Our church is yes. where lots of people exactly. sing. Maybe be the only time they sing publicly. Is there there percolating interest about joining the chorus from any of your congregations? Well, I've asked so many, but it's the travel. They don't want to travel. I said... But now they don't have to travel. They got no excuses. But but like I told them, practice makes perfect, so you've got to make the rehearsals. Yeah. Up in Florence and here. Not just here, up there also. So, you know, if you don't want to commit to travel, then, you know, there's no sense in coming. Can't half-step. It sounds really good on that stage. Have you practiced here before? Like, how does it feel being up on on that stage as opposed to where you were practicing before? Well, this actually feels like a a real concert stage. (laughs) Rosemary Kane is a professional musician. What is it like both working on this now professional stage and working with people that aren't professional musicians? Well, 
you know, that was a while ago, I'd say. I'm sort of in the ranks of the amateur now. So the stage, I think, is going to be a kind of microcosm for the stage at the Academy, and Young at Heart do two choruses a year. So we have that opportunity to be on stage and do our choreography, such as it is. <laughs> and we started working with young people, and that's what we hope will happen here, that we will have access to a younger uh, community of performers. And so it's very exciting for us to be here. If I can get over the drive, it'll be just grand. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of... Like, how did that collaboration come about? You're collaborating with the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought on a performance. Like, how did you connect with them to create something? It often just starts in really simple ways, like shooting an email someone's way. With the School of Contemporary Dance and Thought, we bumped into Jen, who's the head of that school, after one of our rehearsals, because she rehearses in the same space as us, just 15 minutes later. So it it starts in really simple ways. And with AIC, we actually contacted them at some point last year, because we wanted to rent this theater, because we wanted to put on a performance in Springfield. And then the bowl kind of it starts rolling and there you go we actually had a really nice lunch with uh, the president of, of AIC That's I hear it's real. all you can eat and we, we get a staff discount so <laughs> love it we just had guests on the show talking about art and aging and how important it is and it was talking to different people who were theater actors and visual artists and dancers and, and da- musicians yeah and across the board that's what this is all of you have to be a certain age what's the age now the average age uh, average age is about 86 right now but you have to be a certain age to you join. have to be 75 and we sometimes make an accept- yeah, exception yeah, for, sure. for instance Medford who's standing behind me Medford really wants to get on <laughs> yeah. Medford where you live in Northampton oh cool so you come down for this rehearsal but that you have one near you yes yes i uh originally started just bringing my mother back and forth helen boston she's not tomorrow she'll be 94 i love helen boston i didn't know that (laughs) my job was to strategically place the chairs on the stage Uh and then from my continued bugging bob he Let me get in there. Ironically, grandfathered in, even though they, you're the young one. All right. Sunned in. Sunned in. I'm the baby of the crew. How old are you? 71. Oh, yeah. You are a baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talk about, though, what this has meant to you in your own aging gracefully. I know some people will hear about what the Young Car Course is doing or see them and think, oh, it's exploitative to try to get older people to sing this music of younger people. No. But what's your take on the whole situation? I came to every show locally, of course. These folks go overseas. You're talking international here, and it's something for them. For me, it's either this or I'm sitting home watching reruns of Judge Judy. This is definitely better, I see. Well, hey, you know, when you retire, you got to have something to do. And I just, I was told, you know, when I was younger, once I became of age, to join Young at Heart. Mm. And I am so glad I did because it gives you something to do. I like the songs we do, the dancing. Some of them I say, well, I don't know how I'm going to do it. But (laughs) anyhow, I mean, it just keeps you going. You know, I mean, I'm 82 and I sometimes feel like it, but then other times I don't. It just gives me just that inspiration to keep going. And, you know, as long as I can go, don't sit. Well, my focus of when I retired, I was a nervous wreck because... Throughout my life, I didn't develop any hobbies. I was trying to busy get my kids through school and my grandkids through college. So at the age of 84, when I retired, I said, oh my God, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? I'm gonna be dead in six months. <laughs> so I ran into a fellow that I knew from Springfield that was a member of the Young at Heart course, and he asked me to come and 
a tryout for the course and see if I'd like it. So at the first rehearsal, I, I shook my head on the way home. I said, I never heard of any of these songs. I said, I've been in church all my life. Mm-hmm. And I thought I knew music, you know, jazz, rock and roll, all the kind of music. But I never heard of these songs that the Young at Heart course was singing. So he asked me to give it another try. So he said, asked me, would I come back the next weekend? I did. I came back. After the second rehearsal, Bob gave me the song of Michael Jackson's The Man in the Mirror. Mm-hmm. And I said to Joe on the way home, I said, I didn't join the course to be Gladys Knight. I just wanted to be one of the pips. That's all. <laughs> I've known Bob since he was my son's preschool teacher. Wow. So I watched his ascent into this place in the world in Northampton. And so when he asked me to join, which was at the very beginning of the pandemic, I'd be in the chorus four years this coming April, then I didn't have the opportunity to get to know anybody except as a postage stamp in a screenshot. So that was a sort of a brave new world for the chorus. And it was the only world that I knew at the time until we started to rehearse together. And the first song that he gave me, he said, oh, you're from Ireland. Would you like to do Shane McGowan's The Pogues, Dirty Old Town? (laughs) I said, Shane McGowan will probably never, ever sing that song again. If you hear the song by Irish Catholic schoolgirl with harp. But anyway, that was my that was my beginning with the chorus and um, and here I am four years later and I've learned a great deal from Bob uh, since I have my own world of music Irish music and it was it was a rehearsal twice a week it gave me a lot of structure and I started writing a show and um, that show went to Ireland last year and and so I have Bob to thank for because I learned a great deal from him watching him and watching how he dealt with a group and what you have to do to be a leader of a group and so those two worlds have intersected really beautifully for the last four years. It seems like new members come from a lot of the community asking friends of theirs, but do people come asking to be a part of the the group also? Like, heard a few from afar, came in off the street, don't know anybody else, or just are like, hey, I watched the huge documentary. Or watched the documentary that are like, hey, I live here now, I got and I'm reached the the threshold for the age. Can I join? Yeah, we've had some people even move to this part of the country so they could join oh, the group. Uh, we often get emails from people that are actually too young to join, that are like in their 60s, and we're like, no, sorry, like, you're not old. <laughs> you cannot join this group. <laughs> you got to get a mom like Helen Boston yeah, to get you in there. Exactly. <laughs> but we get people in all kinds of ways. Yeah, we definitely get people who don't know anyone in the group who might have seen the documentary, or Rosie often gets people from random places. Home Depot last time I remember. <laughs> I'll take a hose and a membership to the <laughs> but it's, I mean, jumping out of Irish music and into this amazing chorus, and I would say, in terms of the commitment, unless you commit, you have no idea what you, what the benefits are, what you would get out of being in this chorus, this community, this place where we're getting older and we hope, you know, more gracefully together, but certainly just having fun. Aaron. <laughs> Aww. That's the iconic voice of Evelyn Harris, who's also a member of the Young at Heart Chorus. She is indeed. And again, the the practices are open to everybody. And we'll actually talk with the folks collaborating with the Young at Heart Chorus on Thursday, which is the day that they practice at AIC. Incidentally, we'll speak with the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought about the piece that they've worked on together. Later in this show, new ways to look at history with Daniel Bullen, who'll be presenting his work on Shea's Rebellion at the Springfield Armory Historic Site later this week. But up next, Yatta! The land of the rising sun lands on the moon, and Mr. Universe gives us insight to Japan's foray into the lunar game. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. 
The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Metro College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid. Mystery Universe here at your kitchen table in Amherst for some more kitchen table astronomy. And right down the street from where you live in Amherst, at UMass Amherst, there was some fun local connections to some pretty big astronomy news. Yeah, it was pretty cool. If you remember, Monty, the big news about an image. And again, I'm using air quotes in there. Mm -hmm. Image of the shadow of a black hole. Because you can't take a picture of a black hole because no light can escape from it. You can only take pictures of light. But we saw in 2017 a ring. I turned it into my Facebook profile picture. I thought it was so cool. What was that ring of fire? I fell into a burning ring of fire. And that was around a galaxy that is about 55 million light years away. Its name is M87. Mm. It's exciting for astronomers, okay? And so that was the first time that we saw light that is right next to where the event horizon of the black hole starts. And in some ways you are seeing the shadow of that black hole because light which we are not seeing, is where the black hole is. and Because it, it's so dense, light cannot escape from it. Light, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing that Einstein theorized about, but then also himself believed probably didn't exist, but now has been proven 100 years later that it does. A spectacular confirmation yeah. of that. And the UMass connection comes in because the way it was done was using a network of telescopes, which is called Event Horizon Telescope, uh, which includes one of the telescope's large millimeter telescope, which is part of UMass. And that one's in Mexico? It is in Mexico. It is a collaboration between UNAM, an institute in in Mexico, and the astronomy department here at UMass. So that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And uh, so this was in 2017, and and now results have come out for 2018. And it used seven telescopes in 2017, and then another telescope was added in 2018, which is called Greenland uh, Telescope. And basically, what this network of telescopes do is to turn the whole Earth as a giant telescope. Amazing. And that is, I think, I think really cool. You have, I mean, the, the details of these observations are insane because you have to figure out the right conditions. And of course, the observations are not exactly at the, right, at the same time and depends upon as the Earth is rotating, you have to figure out exactly how you are going to combine those. It requires amazing amount of computational powers and so on and so forth. So it was very cool result and just now, another paper has come out when they did an observation again in 2018, and they looked at the same image of the black hole or the event horizon again. And first of all, cool, the first image was correct too, because they found the same thing in 2018. So that's always a good thing. If to it was confirm. missing in 2018, that would have been a problem. Or it looked completely different. You'd be like, oh, maybe there's something wrong with the telescope. So no, they got, they got the same thing, which you, that's what you would expect. And one of the principal investigators here from UMass is Gopal Naryanan, and as he described it as well, I mean, that's sort of like, you know, good to know that it's a similar thing is there. But to me, what's really cool about it, they, they mention in the paper that's, uh, that has come out that there is a bright spot that they found sort of like in the, in the material around the black hole that has moved. The bright spot has moved about 30 degrees between the observations in 2017 and 2018 which was supported by the theoretical predictions and we understand why this might have happened. And of course it rules out some models and so on and so forth. But to me, the cool thing is here from the earth, we use the earth as a giant telescope. 
and then we looked at the center of a galaxy. That galaxy is 55 million light years away. It has this central massive black hole. Almost all galaxies have these giant black holes in our center. Milky Way has it too, but it's a much smaller one. This is a giant black hole. Its size is beyond the orbit of Pluto. And for black holes, you go like, you know, it's, it's, it's big, but you are looking at that size, 55 million light years away. And then you can go like, oh, by the way, in one year, there was some material that moved from one place to another. Again, so sometimes you think about, well, in astronomy, all the time scales are so huge, nothing changes. Well, no, things do change. And this is a change that we observed 55 million light years away. It actually happened in our time, 55 million years ago. Every time you look at a star, you are looking backwards in time. So when you say it's 55 million light years away, it means the light has just arrived here now. We are seeing something that happened, a movie from 55 million years ago. That's right. And 55 million years plus one year. Yeah. <laughs> and it made, changed, made a little bit change and we observed it. That's pretty cool. So that's actually really cool. So congratulations to UMass astronomers. Congratulations to Gopal Naryanan. I mean, this is actually really amazing of what humans can do. And I'm going to come back to my pet peeve about these type of things. When we think about doing positive things, when we think about curiosity, when we are not thinking about militarization or money or other things. I think that's really cool. While you were doing some research, you were uh, YouTube bombed by an advertisement for Space Force. They wanted you to join the U.S. military's newest branch, Space Force. That's the reason why uh, it was on my mind because, uh, yeah, I mean, I was uh, just watching actually an astronomy channel and then the, this ad came in that looked actually kind of cool. It was like looking up at the stars, looking sort of like, you know, that I want uh, to really shape the future. And I was like, well, this actually sounds cool. But I was like, but who is advertising it? And then at the end, join Space Force. Did you join? I cannot disclose this because I may have joined the secret part of it. <laughs> but it is one of those things. And I want to plug in an excellent podcast that was made in 2019. That was the 50th anniversary of Apollo landing. It is called Moonrise. And uh, this is by journalist Lillian Cunningham, who had done other podcasts called Presidential and Constitutional. So she's interested in a American history. And this is about the Apollo program. But what's fascinating about it is that she focuses on why we ended up going to the moon rather than how we did it. So it's not about the technical aspects. It is more about what were the reasons that were shaping the race to the moon. And that history is interesting because, again, as she says right in the first episode, like, you know, that most of this documentary start with JFK's speech about going to the moon. But actually, that is not the case. And you have to go back to science fiction authors. She talk about sort of like, you know, how they were bringing in this element of this imagination, but also the missile program, the nuclear programs. Those were deeply tied to that. Werner von Braun, who's the father of rocketry, uh, who has the problematic past because he was a Nazi in some sense or working with the Nazis to bring in the V2 rockets. He was brought into the US. And so there are a lot of complicated histories to that. He was also uh, author of a plan to actually militarize the moon as we were talking about Space Force. And one of the ideas was that like, well, you actually send American military personnel on the moon, this is late 1950s, so that then we can shoot missiles from the moon. We have the high ground. It's over, Anakin! 
I have the high ground. And that's where some of the science fiction also meets because there was this quotation that whoever controls the space controls the earth. Those statements were made by military personnel as well, borrowed from science fiction talking about it, uh, especially Heinlein, who Robert Heinlein, who's famous Starship Troopers, mm -hmm. connects to that. So there is this interesting history and so do check it out this, this podcast is called again moonrise moonrise and i'm not giving too much away because this has already happened yeah but like Africa kennedy's speech he had so many you know reservations about committing americans to go to the moon he in fact proposed to khrushchev soon after you know why don't we just do a joint mission we don't have to have a space race to the moon for the soviets there was no incentive to say a yes to the joint mission because they were ahead at that time in some sense propaganda value. But I just think about, just imagine if Khrushchev would have said, yeah, sure. And if there would have been a joint American-Soviet mission to the moon. I mean, how our history of the planet, and I'm making this big pronouncement, but like, you know, I mean, that, but that may have been how we think about space would have changed. Anyway, do check it out. I love this po podcast. I'm going to start listening to it right after I leave your house. Moonrise. Not Moonrise Kingdom, but you should check that out too. Great fun too. Wes Anderson. One more thing. There was some big news about the moon just last week because Japan became the most recent nation to soft land a vehicle on the moon, despite what may happen with that particular lander now. So last week... There was also a failure because there was an American uh, company that sent, um, which was the Astrobotic Peregrine uh, rocket, which we talked about before because it had human remains and that had became sort of like ashes and that had become controversial and yeah. things like that. And Gene Roddenberry, a bunch of other Star Trek people on there. So their remains are now in Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> well, because it, it didn't make it to the moon, but it came back and burnt up uh, through the uh, Earth's atmosphere uh, over South Pacific. So, I, I mean, you know, it's still cool. Got to space. <laughs> yeah, it got to space. Uh, I mean, it did uh, It did uh, travel for about half a billion miles or so, like, you know, before coming back and crashing into Earth. <laughs> and that, again, just is a reminder that it is hard to get to the moon. Yeah. And Japan became only the fifth country. So after the U.S., Russia, China, India recently, and, and now it's Japan, which uh, had its spacecraft called SLIM, uh, Smart Lander for Investigating Moon. Well, kudos to the name. Yeah, cool. They landed, and the goal of this mission was to demonstrate precision landing. It's very hard, and, and you, you can imagine if you are there, uh, there are boulders, there are craters. And in fact, uh, the famous Apollo 11 landing, uh, Neil Armstrong had to actually take over manual control because they thought they're going to crash and so on and so forth. So it is a very hard thing, and that's the reason it's hard to land on the moon. So this was trying to show that the cameras on board the spacecraft and radar that is bouncing off like to see how high it is, that it can combine those two things together to land on the moon within that radius of the size of a football field. We don't know exactly how accurate it was. It, they said that it's going to take um, a few weeks to months to figure out whether it landed exactly in that same place or not. But it was an area near a crater which was a little bit slanted. They knew that it was slanted, but it looks like that the way the lander landed that its solar panels are pointing in the wrong direction. And so it's right now running on battery, but they think it's going to run out soon. But it also has cool two uh, rovers, a lunar excursion vehicle one and lunar excursion vehicle 
two. <laughs> and one of them is a hopper. It's kind of cool, sort of like, you know, it actually uh, hops around. And the other one is a small, tiny, it's like size of a baseball. And it's like BB-8 cool. from Star Wars. And, and that's what's happening now because you can have these CubeSats, these really small electronics in those tiny things, and they can do a lot. So it is there. And so Japan has joined in this club next month. China's mission to get samples from the far side of the moon. Sample return mission, never been done. Remember, China is the only country that has landed on the far side of the moon successfully. Again, the problem is far side, you don't see. And so in order to communicate, it just makes it harder. So China is the only country so far to have successfully landed on the far side of the moon. And now their next mission is to actually get samples from the far side and bring them back to Earth. That mission is expected uh, later this year as well. Lots of action on the moon. It's amazing. Do not put military on the moon. Do not put missiles on the moon and uh, do not make it a big casino. I don't know. I hate casinos, but I might go to a moon casino. Just because it's on the moon. Yeah, that would be fun. Just saying. Up next, reframing local history with author Daniel Bullen, who speaks on Shay's Rebellion later this week at the very spot where, well, one of the many spots where it happened. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. January 25th, 1787. Past snowy fields and drifted woodlots, the column of 1,200 men poured down from the western Massachusetts hills in a river of snow-flecked coats and faces red with cold. Their orderly lines bristled with muskets and clubs and flags on staff as the men's feet churned the snow in time with marching songs that issued from rattling drums and piercing pipes. Men stepped out of their barns without coats to witness the spectacle of farmers marching to town to protest the taxes and port fees that had been driving them out of their homes. From the windows along the road to Springfield, farmers and their families craned their necks, trying to gauge the farmer's mood by getting a glimpse of their leader, Captain Daniel Shays from Pelham. All the government proclamations and merchants' editorials blamed him for the disturbances and called the people Shaysites. In reality, dozens of men from various towns had signed the people's proclamations. When asked, they consistently refused to say that any one man led them. Frequently, they called themselves regulators, joining a long tradition of common people banding together to regulate their government and administer justice in their region. Only one in four of them had a musket, and only one in ten of these had a bayonet. The rest carried clubs or else they were not armed at all, and they swung their cold hands to the uneven rhythms of forging through deep snow. Some wore leather gaiters, but many had marched from Colerain or Worcester with only heavy, homespun woolen hose. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmont. And I'm Khalees Smith. On Saturday, January 27th at 1 p.m., the Springfield Armory National Historic Site is hosting a presentation offering new perspectives on Shays Rebellion. It features local author Daniel Bullen and his book, Daniel Shays' Honorable Rebellion. Which you just heard a little excerpt from. The book tells the story from the people's perspective, showing that Shays and thousands of farmers were not trying to overthrow the government. They were protesting flagrantly unjust economic policies that were forcing them off their land, all to pay windfall profits to financiers. Drawing on extensive research, Daniel Shays' Honorable Rebellion tells the story of the challenges the people faced in keeping the peace through five months of protests and escalating government threats before they ultimately won reforms in an electoral landslide. And joining us in the studio is author Daniel Bullen, who, in addition to Daniel Shays' Honorable Rebellion, has written several 
other books uh, that are not necessarily as historical in nature as this one. So I guess the first question might or be purely historical. Yeah. In nature. What was it? What was it that turned you on to this very local story that takes place in all of our backyards here in the four one three? Yep. Great. It's <clears throat> great to see you guys here. Nice your, to see you in your new building. Yes. Well. Um, yeah. Right great. down the street from the armory. Really. Right down the street from where the talk will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as I say in the preface uh, to the book, I found this story on the side of the road. Um, and I, I feel like I kind of rescued it. Um, I, I was driving. So then who wrote the manuscript? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, I, I was driving up uh, Route 202 in from Pelham north to North New Salem. And then ultimately was, my destination was, um, was Concord. I was going to go sell one of my other books, which has to do with the transcendentalists uh, over at the Concord bookstores. <laughs> um, and saw the sign on the side of the road that said Daniel Shea's Highway. And I came home and said, who is this guy? And I'm a Hudson River Valley uh, person, grew up in the New York suburbs and went upstate and downstate for school. Um, so I came home and started researching and this was a while ago, it was 2012. Uh, Bernie Sanders was kind of recently on the scene. Occupy was still in recent memory. And the more I started reading about Daniel Shays, the more I felt like, Hey, this story isn't old. This isn't the story they're billing it as. Right. And I had, this is where the rescue part came is that Mm -hmm. it was used to tell one very particular story about how we got to the constitution. And that story is highly prejudicial and, uh, almost to the point of propaganda, um, almost deliberately created propaganda. Um, and what I did here was something that I, you know, like to think Howard Zinn and those fellows would like to see is to tell the story from the regular people's perspective and see what animated the regular people, what were their motives, what were their concerns, um, and what did they think they were doing when they were marching to these courthouses and interrupting the business of the courts. Mm-hmm. For poop, for people who don't know the specifics of Shays' Rebellion, can we have a, a brief rundown of what it was? Because it was a longer period of time than people think. Right. It's not just right. the armory uh, confrontation. Right. It's a lot more than that. Right. Um, the nutshell version is that this started in July of 1786. So this is right after the revolution. Um, there's, but still before the Constitution. Yes. But this is, yes, what led up to the Constitution. Um, there, and so this, I'll do it that way. Um, the story for sh- what's known as Shays' Rebellion is itself a propagandistic term um, to say that this simultaneously drunken degenerate uh, and also uh, military genius Daniel Shays was going to threaten to overthrow the government. And Henry Knox was in Boston writing to George Washington and Mount Vernon saying, you need to come out of retirement because twelve to 15,000 desperate and degenerate men are planning to wage a war against the idea of good government, right? And so the idea was that Shays' Rebellion showed the founding fathers, this is the school book version that kids are literally getting in school now. There's, it's still the official version, um, that Shays' Rebellion... Uh, started when farmers were angry about taxes, so they wanted to overthrow the government, which people do w- when they're angry about anything. They'd um, literally just done that a couple years before. <laughs> we had gone through this exercise. Yeah. Um, so, and there were, you know, I, there are details I'm going to s- kind of skip over. If you want to hear the, the the longer version of tax policy and currency <laughs> policy in 1786, I can do that <laughs> at the armory. Um, but so basically the unrest led the founding fathers to the conclusion that Uh, We needed to strengthen the Articles of Confederation with a stronger federal constitution. And the the, the part of that story that's left out is to say we needed a stronger federal constitution. And then the quiet part was to protect against dangerous poor people, Uh, right? Because the poor people were agitating, right? right? And so the people had to be caricatured. And we watched this happen fairly recently with the caricature of socialists for anybody who wanted to improve social conditions for anybody, 
right? But the protesters at the time, if you asked them what was going on, they they marched to the courts in lines with weapons, with uniforms, with drums in order to show that or with with discipline, with military order in order to show that they were not the democratic mobs that people had been taught to fear, that they were the people, they were the people themselves, and that they were representing an injury that had been done to everybody. So the story that I found once I started doing the research and gathering all the information and making the timeline and showing that this wasn't just a Springfield thing, this was happening from Taunton and Concord and Worcester and Northampton, Springfield, out to Great Barrington, over a course from July through January and then elections in April the following year, there was still they were still bringing people to the gallows for these staged mock hangings where that nobody was actually hung uh, in June of 1787, right? And this is all at the same time that they're kicking off the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and starting to rewrite this document that footnote they knew needed to be rewritten. Like mm-hmm. there had been multiple calls for constitutional conventions. There had been four pseudo conventions leading up to this, right? So. There's an argument among scholars whether Shays' rebellion, so-called, really created the Constitution as we know it. It does seem to have been the agitating act that made everybody realize they were going to need to finally do something about problems that they already about knew that they needed to do. this first draft that they enacted and hadn't really revived properly right. for a while. Right. But, <laughs> so the, the story that I found was that uh, rather than the powerful people need to come together to revise their Constitution – to protect against dangerous poor people, which is the official story, which literally kids are still getting in school right now. Mm -hmm. The story I found and then wrote in the book was that from time to time, regular people need to band together to protect themselves and their liberties and their property and their interests from the dangerous, out of touch, rich people who are coming after them with policies that just don't reflect a a social agreement between rich and poor that we're all going to be part of. Not just policy, though. There's parts in your book that mention, like, lawyers and folks of means in Boston getting military forces and going after some of the folks in the rebellion and bringing them back to be to be tried or for, for charges. Like, that's – like, it, it's interesting to see them mobilize in that way in exactly the opposite of what is portrayed of, right. of the confrontation. Right. No, the way that it escalated was um... – I mean, when you read uh, Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States, um, it's like reading the same story. The people got angry about some things that were flagrantly unfair. They started to band together. Everybody got involved. Natives, you know, settlers, Chinese, men, women, like everybody was in. They built this huge tent. They started to agitate. And then you get one of two endings. They marched the National Guard in. And either everybody got shot up or they pushed through reforms, right? Those are like the two stories. So the way that this started was with constitutionally authorized gatherings in town halls, in meeting houses throughout New England, like 50 towns sent representatives at one point to one meeting, um, sending petitions to Boston saying, we don't like how this is going. Can we please do something about it? And the way that the Massachusetts uh, constitution was structured uh, and the property requirements for holding office, we had... Senate over a body of the House of Representatives, the requirements that um, James Bowden, John, uh, or sorry, Samuel Adams and John Adams wrote up in the 1780 Constitution of Massachusetts, increased property requirements from before the revolution. Um, So you had to have some interest, you had to have some wealth to even be part of the government. Um, And this aristocratic Senate of wealthy merchants just voted down anything that came out of the House 
that said we should issue paper money, we should let people pay in goods instead of in currency, we should help people out and make this agreeable. Um, the crisis, and this is always important to point out, the crisis that people were, were experiencing after the revolution was affecting all 13 states, right? Everybody was in crisis. And in Rhode Island, in Pennsylvania, in Maryland, in Vermont, like or Vermont wasn't quite a state yet, but um, in the other states, they had protests, they had riots. People got together and said, we're not going to let this happen. We need to fix this. We need to come to a better agreement between the ruling power and the people. And the ruling powers in all those other states said, oh, okay, okay, fine, fine, we're good. Well, you can pay your debts in, in something other than hard coin. But in Massachusetts, the um, elites in Boston said, nope, we're going we're gonna to push this. We need to show that the full faith and credit of the, of the government is, is going to answer these debts. We're, we're going to stand behind our, our contracts. We're going to pay this in full, which from this perspective now sounds like doublespeak, right? Because they were saying, we're going to take from you and use that to pay ourselves windfall profits, right? So, and this is one of the things that I always have to debunk is the, the farmers weren't just angry about taxes, Right. What happened was the farmers fought in the revolution for no pay. They fronted their, their time, their service to the state expecting to get paid down the road. And they were paid in these promissory notes that were basically worthless at the end of the war. They, when they knew that they were worthless, they traded them to whoever was going to give them hard coin to go home and start their farms up again. But those notes stayed in circulation. Mm. And they, the hard, coin, hard paper that said this is you know, good for this amount with a signature on it, and as they stayed in circulation, they were traded on exchanges and they worked their way through these channels into the hands of wealthy financiers and speculators who could risk a couple bucks to buy these things up at 20, 30% of their value, waiting to see what the government was going to do. And we, this became a problem when um, Alexander Hamilton redeemed these same notes and created the Whiskey Rebellion some years later. <laughs> but so what they ended up doing was agreeing to pay them in full and charge the people to raise the money to pay the value of their own pay to the speculators who had bought these things at a huge discount. And the people smelled a rat. It was flagrantly unfair. And they weren't willing to lose their farms for it. That is Daniel Bullen, who has a book, Daniel Shea's Honorable Rebellion, that takes place in no small part at the Springfield Armory right down the street. And there will be a reading and a talk about this piece of local history this Saturday at the Armory. Coming up, we'll hear more from Daniel Bullen about perhaps some contemporary analogs to a rebellion and whether they are truly an analog or not. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're here with author Daniel Bullen, whose book Daniel Shea's Honorable Rebellion, which takes place all over uh, Massachusetts and specifically in western Massachusetts and at the Springfield Armory, will be looked at at the Springfield Armory Historic Site this Saturday. We are dealing in the aftermath of uh, another rebellion that some people believe is an honorable rebellion. I believe it was Jefferson that referred to Daniel Shays' rebellion as an honorable one, where the farmers did not want to be forced off their land by having to pay with the no money that they had left and these worthless promissory notes. Are there analogs between what happened on January 6th and Daniel Shays' rebellion, Daniel Bullen? Um Yes and no. So uh, right after January 6th happened, or maybe it was the one-year anniversary, uh, Miles Taylor, who was that anonymous deep state figure who said, don't worry, we'll keep Trump on the rails, um, and Michael Steele, who was the one-time head of the RNC, published an article saying, imagine thousands of people storming the Capitol trying to overthrow government. No, 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 it's not 2021. Or it's 1786, 1787. 
Um, and we've seen this before, and this was the problem, and we, what we need is stronger government again. Um, there, and I wrote an article uh, that I think ran in the Gazette that said, no, no, no. <laughs> January 6th was not Shays' Rebellion. These are two very distinct lines of protest. Um, what Daniel Shays and the thousands of farmers who were protesting were doing was nonviolently trying to win the hearts and minds of their countrymen. They were trying to show the government is out of touch. There's been a wrong here. We need to all come together. And they avoided conflict at every step, even to the point when they were marching up to the Springfield Armory. Uh, they took cannon fire that killed four men and wounded 20. They ran away to cries of murder, murder, because the way that those protests work is whoever can wave that bloody shirt in the marketplace wins. Mm. Whoever shoots loses, Yeah, mm -hmm. right? The tradition that what we saw, I, I, as I understand it, in January 6th is the tradition that Heather Cox Richardson wrote about in How the South Won the Civil War, which is where um, parties attached, well, you know, going back and back, but parties use violence and, and undermine elected officials in order to supplant the will of the people to just do away with democracy and replace it using violence and intimidation. Um, to just to have their way with how government is going to run. So yes, the people during 1786-87 were obstructing the courts. Uh, there was never any moment where they thought, we're going to take over. <laughs> it was more like farmers doing street theater or something like that. It was a little bit theatrical, but yeah, performative theater to show who, like, who are we? Are we the people? Right. right. And right. Fr frankly, who they're interacting with, too. Like, they went to the courts to try and, and interrupt there as opposed to going to, like, Boston to interrupt, like, yeah. Beacon to Hill. To interrupt right. them getting thrown right. off their land in right. court. Right. right. Yeah. Well, so this is an interesting tidbit maybe to close on is that um, the histories that exist, the histories that I had to wade through to get to this story were largely pulled from inflammatory editorials in the newspapers from our region, including... The Hampshire Gazette, which was founded in September of 1786 <laughs> for this in very order purpose. to give merchants a platform for calling these people drunken, degenerate, <laughs> lazy people who didn't want to work, who just wanted things for free, who were being funded by foreign emissaries to overthrow the government. Like... Where have we heard that picture before? Well, wow. <laughs> no what a legacy you have, know. Daily Hampshire Gazette, to, <laughs> to hold on to in your creation. Yeah. Daniel Bullen, uh, the author of Daniel Shea's Honorable Rebellion, Saturday at Springfield Armory, which is one of the sites of the rebellion. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, 1 p.m. Look forward to seeing you. Thanks so much. Tuesday on the Fabulous 413, songs figurative and actual. We'll delve into the works of local composer John Aylward and the man himself and maestro and baritone Kalen Marcel Manson. It'll be aired this Sunday on NEPM Classical. And a slice of queer history with Harvey Firestein's Torch Song and the importance of bringing pre-age stories of gay life to the stage with members of the East Hampton Theatre Company. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. See we'll you see tomorrow. you tomorrow.